Liv, welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Many of my listeners will know you, but for those who don't, perhaps you could introduce yourself. I originally studied physics, well, astrophysics in particular. I had plans to become a, you know, a researcher. I really, really loved physics and um, particularly anything to do with space and, and the universe. Um, but those plans went kind of awry uh, when I took a took some time off to try and just you know explore the world a little bit. Um, and I started uh, playing on TV game shows, and because uh, I always just loved games and I always thought I'd be good at them. And it was on one of these game shows that I learned to play poker. I loved poker so much that I then put physics on hold to see if I could become a professional poker player. Uh, so I ended up being a professional poker player for 10 years or so. But during this time, I also got interested in philanthropy. My Some other poker players and I started an, a fundraising organization um, for highly cost-effective charities called Raising for Effective Giving. And during the course of that, I started to learn more and more about global catastrophic risk, existential risks, um, particularly those posed by emerging technologies. And then I sort of got so passionate about this. Well, and also I, you know, I, at some point started falling out of love with poker a little bit. So I ended up retiring about in 20, well, technically 2019, but I kind of stopped playing in 2018 and now work kind of full-time as kind of, I guess, a sort of science communicator and, and filmmaker to raise awareness of some of the like game theoretic drivers, the risks that our civilization is facing, and then particularly the mechanism that's driving these risks. Um, and I mostly do that through my YouTube channel and other social media platforms. And this leads nicely into the main idea for, for this podcast, which is Moloch. So wh- what, do, what do we mean when we say, when we say Moloch? Um, what is that? Yeah, so it's kind of a, an esoteric concept um, in that, well, it, so it was originally, you know, comes from this old Bible story where legend has it, there was this horrible cult who wanted to win so badly, you know, win, win wars and, and, and expand their power so badly that they would sacrifice the thing they loved the most to this demon god called Moloch. And that was their children. Um, so really, really awful. Uh, so it became known as this like god of war and sacrifice, uh, pretty nasty things. But then more recently, uh, in 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 popular culture, it sort of reemerged again. First of all, through the silent film Metropolis that was made in 1927, uh, which sort of talked about this seemingly utopian city that underground was driven by this sort of dark, scary machine that consumed workers in order to keep everything running and the protagonist sees this machine as as the the god moloch um and then alan ginsberg wrote a poem about it in the 1960s sort of seemingly comparing it to something akin to capitalism but there's something else as well and then scott alexander uh of slate style codex wrote this amazing blog post called meditations on moloch which dissected alan ginsberg's poem and that was the first time that it ever got sort of directly linked to a dark force of game theory and of, of coordination failure and, and race to the bottom scenarios. I'm now trying to sort of popularize this meme through videos because, you know, I think it's such an important concept um, and I don't see anyone talking about it on video. So that's sort of its uh, story arc of how it became known in popular culture. Uh, but what it actually is, therefore, 
you know, I don't necessarily think it's actually like a conscious demon god that's causing all the world's problems. But in effect, it is the the game theoretic forces uh, that it sort of constitutes um, really are causing many of our big problems. Yeah, I think it's nice to take a couple of examples here. And one example you've uh, brought to my attention, at least, is this issue of beauty filters on social media. So perhaps explain how beauty filters is an instance of a Moloch type situation. I, you know, I, I'm a person who uses Instagram probably too much. Um, and particularly, you know, five, 10 years ago, when I was still trying to like build my profile, and you know, I was trying to make it as a sort of trying to build fame as a poker player. There was a lot of, I noticed that if I posted a picture that's with some, you know, as sort of a pretty picture that's not necessarily of myself and that had some kind of in intellectual content, it wouldn't get that many likes. Whereas if I posted a sexy picture of myself, it would get tons of attention and likes. And I was like, huh, interesting. Um, and then a few years ago, they started releasing these, these AI beauty filters that would, you know, just sort of subtly tweak and enhance your face, you know, not like a form of digital makeup, almost like a form of digital plastic surgery. And I remember like trying these out and then noticing, you know, I would input a picture of myself that I already liked. I thought I looked cute in, but then after I passed it through the filter, I would then like compare the side by side and I just, I would hate the old photo. So basically it would, it would make me hate my natural face. And yet again, I noticed if I posted pictures with the filter on, they would get even more likes and more attention. And then I noticed that clearly other influencers were using these things too. And so this, you know, got me thinking, I was like, wow, this is a, a perfect manifestation of this Moloch thing. Because, you know, what, the way it works is, is basically, if you're in some kind of competitive situation, so in this case, you know, you're trying to outcompete other influencers on Instagram to get more, you know, more likes, more followers, um, you know, because it's ultimately, it is a bit of a zero sum game that's going on there then you're incentivized to use whatever tricks you can. And in this case, this is the ultimate hack. For some reason, these, these filters hack people's dopamine and make them click those pictures as opposed to other pictures. So whether or not you really want to use these things, you are massively incentivized to do it because if you don't, then all your opponent, you, you know, all your competitors are going to get more attention. And so it creates this like sort of race to the bottom, essentially, where you end up sort of you, you sort of forces you if you want to continue being competitive you need to sacrifice more and more of your integrity and essentially you know mislead your followers about your natural appearance and so yeah that's that's one particular example that i i you know i made my first video about um because it's just so current and and so salient and there are other instances of moloch on social media for example we can we can think about uh, extreme politics driving the most uh, attention to to specific people. We can think about short and and intense videos that that uh, again attract a lot of attention, but perhaps is not the best for uh, people's attention spans. I love what Tristan Harris calls it. He calls it the race to the bottom of the brainstem, which is a lot of what social media is. It it just seems like we found these like quirks of human dopamine. You know, by and large, yes, people are being more entertained. You know, if, if something is entertaining, they're more likely to click on it. But just because something's entertaining, it doesn't mean it's necessarily good for them. And if everyone is sort of doing this, then it's like encouraging, like the fact that video content is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. There are pr presumably negative externalities to this in the, in the form of like, uh, you know, addiction 
shortening attention spans. You know, you can't get nuanced points across in a very short piece of content. But because of like the competitive incentives of the like social media game, we end up in that situation anyway. Yeah. So what is it specifically that makes it a monologue type situation? Is, is it the fact that for each participant in the game, it's rational for them to use the beauty filter or to do the, the shortest and most intense uh, video possible? But if everyone does that, then everyone is, is worse off. Would that, would that be a, an accurate summary of the Moloch situation? Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a very good summary of it. You know, you can think of it as whenever people optimize for winning a sort of short-term, like narrow goal at the cost of the long-term whole. Um, so to put it into like economics terms, it's, it's when you fail to internalize the externalities of the competitive process that you are playing. Um, you know, so sometimes like market failures can be the case. You know, pollution is another good example. You know, you have a bunch of clothing factories that, you know, are in India um, and, you know, they're all trying to get by. They're all kind of competing against each other. They're, you know, profit margins are kind of, are kind of thin. Everyone is incentivized to, you know, let's say, you know, they could be responsible and, and make sure that they don't pollute the rivers that they're sitting on by putting in expensive filtration systems, for example. But if they're operating on such tight profit margins and these, the sort of checks and balances system is very lax, which is often the case in a lot of industries, then each individual factory owner is incentivized to just like actually quietly pollute into the river because they'll be saving money on that. And, and especially then if they know, you know, if one looks down the road and sees that one's doing it, it's like, well, we might as well do it and, and so on. And so the cycle sort of continues. Yeah. So that, that would be an example of like failing to capture the externalities of sort of the competition that they're playing in. Uh, you know, they get all the upsides of the profits and outsource to the like wider commons, the, the, the costs of, of, of that game that they're in essentially. And when we begin, or at least when I began thinking about Moloch, uh, it begins showing up everywhere. So it generalizes far beyond social media. It shows up, for example, in Science 2, where uh, you're incentivized to get uh, the maximum amount of citations for your papers uh, as, you're, as you possibly can. Um, and this perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, citations is not exactly what, what uh, is not exactly equal to the most insightful papers and so you're incentivized to to game the system to to get a lot of citations, but perhaps that doesn't produce the the greatest science. So that that's a, a potentially massive problem, also. Right, it's a bit of like a Godhart's law thing. The the moment you you set up a specific metric for something, you open that metric up to being uh, gamed by people, and it begins to diverge from what you're trying to capture with that metric. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Godhart's law, which is like when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Like that's an example of that, right? But you know, the the measure is all the number of citations is one way of measuring how how quality a you know scientific paper is. Um, that's the way what a journal might look at. But then once everyone starts optimizing for that, they're not actually optimizing for science anymore, and so it's no longer actually a good a good measure. Um, it sort of like corrupts what what the original goal was. What is the difference between normal competition among people to try to produce the best social media video or the best scientific paper and then these Moloch situations? Isn't what we're describing here simply competition? Competition is actually like a more fundamental thing and that it's a form of interaction, just like you have cooperation, coordination, etc. And competition is 
actually just a neutral thing. It, it just depends on the situation in which it plays out and the actors, you know, the agents within it who are, who are playing it. So, you know, like a tennis game, you know, people often think of most competitions, oh, it's just purely, it's like a zero-sum thing, right? One, you know, one person's win is another person's loss. True zero-sum can only actually happen in theory. You know, like if we play a game of chess or tennis at the end of this session, uh, at the end of this recording, we, we, we might become better friends, we might get fitter or smarter, we might get better at chess. There's always, because, you know, things are causally connected in this universe, there will always be some kind of externality. And the question is, is that externality positive or negative? And Moloch, at least in my definition, Moloch is essentially the god of negative sum competition. In other words, when, when competition is unhealthy and makes the world a worse place for having existed in the first place, just as it, you know, it can also be a very positive thing. You know, there are many instances in, of, of competition being very beneficial for society. I mean, arguably a lot of capitalism, right? Like capitalism has been, is compared to something like communism, is, is a, like embraces competition deeply um, as, as a main mode of interaction between you know, businesses or individuals. And that it, it has lifted more people out of poverty than any other economic model, like massively. It's driven innovation at a far faster rate than we've ever seen before. Let's put it this way. I would much rather live today on a like low to medium income than a king 300 years ago. Like my, my life outcomes are so much better because of all the innovations we've created by and large through capitalism. But with all forms of competition, if they're not Paid, paid attention to, they can end up in a, a very negative direction. Oh, another example of um, competition being helpful is even it, like in science. So I remember going to CERN a few, you know, back, back when they were trying to, I think they'd just done the, the Higgs boson uh, discovery. But I remember being fascinated about the fact that they had actually had different teams working on the Large Hadron Collider, competing teams of scientists racing against each other to be the first to, to discover um, the existence of, of, of the Higgs boson, which was like, oh, this is unusual. Normally, I thought science is purely a collaborative affair, but actually, no, they were harnessing the power of competition to, to essentially force each other to up their game. And it was a really successful model. So with it, smart enough design of the game in the first place, competition can be enormously beneficial in all sorts of ways. Um, but the trouble is, is that we don't necessarily design the system smartly. A lot of the systems we are in have sort of, we've bumbled our way into through sort of kind of random evolutionary process and processes and coming from all kinds of weird starting conditions that, you know, didn't have any in intention behind the design. And perhaps that's a, that's a key point right there, uh, because this might explain why it is that we can't just refuse to play the, the game or we can't just spot which situations are negative some and then not engage in them because we are already we already exist in a world with a lot of systems and so we are in a sense forced to to engage with many of these uh, systems that have these monarchy type dynamics uh, what i'm thinking of here is is for example if you if you start a social media account or if you start a career as a scientist, well then it's very difficult to try to 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 change that system and if, if the system you're you're working within. And if you try to do it, you will pay a price individually. And so, uh, Liv, how, how do you think about changing these systems? Um, yeah, that's the like the quadrillion dollar question. There's sort of two ways you can. Well, okay, when it comes to like systems design. You know, there have been instances where, you know, you get a sort of critical mass of people to appreciate that the system is is broken, that they're in, um, you know, like 
take take the 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 publication crisis in science, right, where you have all the sort of prestige locked up in a small handful of journals that are able to sort of dictate exactly how science is done, but that then like comes at the cost of, you know, like El Elsevier or whatever their, their name is, you know, that own so many of the science journals. They don't pay the scientists that produce the work. They, they, and, then, and then they charge everybody, including the public, to be able to even view the scientific journals. But because if you're a scientist and you want your work to be, you know, if you want to get funding in the first place, you have to prove that you're able to get published in the, one of the main journals. So they've kind of got this like weird prestige capture of the system that in many ways is just like, you know, they're this like weird body that is like extracting so much money out of the system. You know, they have some of the highest profit margins in the world of like major companies. Um, it's quite astonishing. And it's incredible, like there's no way for any individual actor within, within it, any individual scientist to like change the game. But that said, if they can make enough awareness of that, and I've seen like movements happen, I'm trying to think of like a specific example of one that was very successful, but you know, if they got like 52% of scientists to all come together and be like, you know what, this is, this is really bullshit. Like we want open source journals from now on. Like we don't, we, science knowledge should be free to the, to the world. Um, or at least much, much cheaper, at least, you know, not $30 per journal or whatever it is to, to like read, the, read this stuff. That would be a way. So like finding a way to coordinate. But the trouble is with like Moloky systems, they're often by definition, like almost impo basically impossible to coordinate in. Uh, an example I always like to give of like a really classic one is um, like a, a stadium full of people. Um, you know, let's say you're at you know, a football game or a rock concert or something. And everyone is sitting down you know, when, the, when, the, when the game begins and everyone's got roughly a sort of equal view because it's like an angled thing. So you've got like this much, this much view. But then a few people near the front decide that they want and actually they want an even better view because if they stand up, they can now see, wow, they can see even further uh, because they're above everyone else's head so much. So they stand up and then that forces the people behind them. Well, now if they want to sort of continue playing the game, in this case, like just continue watching the game, um, they also have to stand up, but that affects people behind them and so on. And so eventually like almost everyone ends up standing because of the actions of a few people at the front. Because it's so loud and there's like thousands of people, it's almost impossible to get everyone to coordinate and sit back down again. So that's an example of like a, just a really flawed system that is incredibly vulnerable to the sort of selfish actions of just a very small number of competitors within it to like sort of fall, cause the whole thing to sort of like crumble down into this like lower shitty state. Because the thing is, once everyone is standing up, it, no one's actually now got a better view than they had before, comparatively, but they're all in a worse state because now they have to stand for the like the next three hours. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's like a new equilibrium. They were in a sort of Nash equilibrium before that was unstable. And now they're in a, a new Nash equilibrium, but it's, it's just worse than the one before. It's like what you would call, um, Eliezer Yudkowsky wrote a really cool um, book on this called Inadequate Equilibria, which is just like a, a, basically the, the, a list of just like really shitty examples, shitty equilibria within our civilization, within our society that we're kind of stuck in and th that it's almost impossible to coordinate out of in order to get to where we would be better off. What's what's so devilish about these monarchy type situations is that it doesn't re it doesn't require um, that the participants are dumb. It doesn't require that the participants are evil. It's it's simply it feels almost like you're being forced into doing something that that you 
deep down know is bad with with your um your example with the stadium where where you you're incentivized to stand up for example right you know the people you know you're screwing the people over behind you but at the same time you're being screwed if you don't stand up and it's like well what am i going to do we're all going to end up there same thing with the beauty filters i don't want you know i didn't want to use them but if i don't i'm getting you know left sort of a left behind you know or like even more perhaps a better example is like a model a professional model you know does she does beauty shoots and it becomes it became the norm you know 20 years ago when photoshop existed to like have your photos retouched and let, you know even if she's like really morally against this she's like no you're like airbrushing my skin so much it doesn't even look real if she refuses the the photographers or the the company or whoever will just hire another model that will and so she'll be literally out of work so if she wants to work then she has to do it doesn't mean she's evil it's just like the 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 setup the game is evil and then there's this question of how did we stumble into all of these systems that are not optimal for for all of the people who are participating participating in these systems could we start new systems if we can't reform the systems we have could we potentially start new ones potentially yes um and in many cases you know i think i think we're gonna have to but like when it comes to like the really big ones you know like our market failures for example where we've got because right now certain capitalistic industries are not doing a good job of internalizing their externalities but at the same time like i don't think we can just like tear it all down and start again like we clearly can't do that it's just way beyond our scope and it may that tearing down process may be even more disruptive you know deadly um than if we just left it going um so that would be uh, you know with those kind of problems you kind of have to do these and that's where you need like a bit more like centralization like for example some smarter rules you know like if if you can imp- if you could properly price the cost of polluting the air or polluting the the water then that would internalize those externalities and force those companies to actually um not you know not do the sort of shitty defection thing but yeah in terms of like in an ideal world we would sort of redesign the system Uh, so that you're not having to sort of slap these band-aid solutions on. And then, the, of course, there's the other approach, which is like making people sort of essentially, you know, less selfish. Because a lot of time people do stuff where they just, it's not because, again, they're meaning to be even selfish. It's just they're not even aware that they, they're producing externalities. They're not aware that they're polluting the Collins or whatever. Um, or they're not aware that they're in this like race to the bottom spiral. And that's that's sort of why the tactic I'm taking in like making these videos and so on and like trying to make them as like, digestible to a really really wide audience um because you know i see a lot of people particularly with like the political division and everything that's sort of getting worse and worse it there's so much like so much of that is coming from people thinking that it's all the other the other side's fault if people can learn to sort of take it a, a wider step out and realize that it's actually you know the system you know the, the let's call it the clickbait industrial complex for example you know realize that that's actually the real enemy here Yes, sure, the other side, they still do stuff you don't like and so on. But if you could get out of the haze of the industri- the, the clickbait industrial complex and, and see the other side for like actually the points that they're at instead of seeing this like really perverse, like villainified version that the media show you, it would reduce so much of that. So trying to get people to appreciate that like what the true enemy is, is another approach, um, you know, through awareness um, and So in those instances where people do at least have somewhat of a choice to not do the selfish action or, or at least be aware of doing it, um, then you know that would also mitigate and slow down the problem. 
So on the individual side, you have this nice counterpoint uh, to Moloch. Uh, another, what do you call it? Moloch is a demon. What is win-win? <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah. So, I've, you know, I've been spending, I've been dressing up as Moloch and so on, which uh, after a while starts to get, get a little bit like icky. Um, and I was thinking, okay, so if Moloch is the god of negative sum games, what's the inverse of that? What's the anti-Moloch? Um, as who's the god of positive sum games, uh, of win-win situations. And I couldn't basically think of a better name than win-win. Well, I started calling it win-win as a like sort of, okay, that's like its working title. But the more I kept thinking of it, the more it just stuck. And now I actually just really love the name because it's super simple. Um, it's not like overly fancy. But, you know, what, what it is at its core is, is it's something that loves both coordination and cooperation. You know, it definitely supports whereas Moloch hates that like well it, like, it, it, it recoils from the idea of people getting along and coordinating and working together on a common goal so it loves that but it also loves pockets of competition it loves to have a game it likes you know when there's space to do it and, and the externalities are probably accounted for um it will love of a nice healthy competition just like you know they, they had at CERN so it's you know it's not like as gods go, it's not like it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's not like all somber and like, oh, you must, you know, follow me. It's like it's just like down to party and um and it loves it a good positive sum game. And and another thing, you know, I, I try and I try and avoid avoid calling it the anti-Moloch because in reality it's that would put it on like the same level uh, as as Moloch. And it's it's something higher dimensional than that, just by def you know, Moloch is because it can only operate in the realm of competition, whereas win-win can operate in competition and coordination and it, it's so sometimes it's even so smart and wise it, it can even like let go on okay fine have your little negative sum game right there yeah go for it but then it is able to notice when that negative sum game is getting a little too big and slap it down so it you know it's it's the boss of moloch and this is this is just a way of thinking in 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 our heads about which games we are playing in life are we playing games that involve moloch are we playing games that involve win-win uh, how have you have you found this personally useful to to think in in these terms? Yeah, I mean the way it sort of has personally helped me is well, first of all, like if I'm trying to decide, you know, oh, should I carry on doing videos? Maybe I should start a company. Maybe I should do something else. The, you know, the first thing I now ask myself is like, well, okay, are, what are the externalities of this going to be? Is this what win win, -win would do? You know, so that as a sort of starting point, uh, just, to, you know, and it's I'm not to say that I can perfectly model what win-win would do, far from it, but just as a as a practice question, you know, as a question that I will ask myself before I in undertake something. But another way it's it's been very helpful for me personally is I've always been an incredibly competitive person, like like to the point of of almost pathological when I was a teenager. Like I had to be the best at sports. I would want to know what my friends got in exams to know, you know, was, was my percentage, was my grade higher? And, and this, you know, this was, you know, in some ways that can be helpful because it can give you, you know, give you the impetus to, to work harder and so on. But looking back on it, like I know that it was unhealthy because it would also give rise to jealousy. Like if someone did better than me, I would actually feel bad, which is deeply mollicky very, very mollicky. You know, win-win would be like, good for you. You did well. Great. Oh, I'm also going to use that as an incentive to work harder. But they would truly, you know, Moloch feel, oh, sorry, win-win feels deep compersion and, and joy at, at someone else's success, whereas Moloch definitely does not. And 
since I've sort of like built this, this, you know, this, a vision of this character in my, in my mind and like, you know, I try and emulate it whenever possible. And I found it's made me just, you know, I now have a much healthier relationship with competition. If I see, you know, if someone goes out and starts their own win-win thing, I will truly feel good about it. Cause it's like, great. This is what, this is a positive meme. This is a race to the top, more win-win stuff everywhere. Whereas I think old me would have been like, it's my thing, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's how it's like personally, personally helps me basically. The, what we're talking about here is simply understanding the incentives that we are working under and understanding how important it is to to look at the incentives you're you're operating within because they will shape you in 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 ways that that you perhaps don't fully understand and that's on the individual level is there anything to say about the systems level or the societal level what could we do to have uh, better incentives to have uh, less moloch and more win-win it's a very broad question, I know, but uh, is there anything is there anything you've come across that's interesting there? Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 really hard, and I I don't have the the answer to this. Um, I mean, my, my I mean, my first port of call would be to recommend who I think are like they're really good systems thinkers and are actively working on on incentive design. Um, some examples are Ezra Raskin and Tristan Harris at Center for Humane Technology. Um, you know, particularly through Looking at this, these problems, how they manifest in Silicon Valley technology, and then also Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who are sort of coming from an, an even broader perspective, from like a really philosophical um, background, uh, they are some of the best thinkers on that. But to, to try and throw in my two cents, I think at least for the time being. You know, it's not—it's not a fully complete. It's not again. It's—it's it's more of like a, a temporary band-aid solution to these to these problems. But uh, things like having, you know, nuclear weapons treaties, have historically, you know, they've probably kept us alive in the last few decades. We we might we probably wouldn't be here if we didn't have some kind of treaties, like really strong international norms against the use of nuclear weapons. While you know they're not completely fixing, they're not making nuclear weapons go away. They are at least giving us buying us time to figure out the solutions to these like tricky game theoretic dilemmas. Um, so yeah, having stronger norms, uh, like basically where, where people, where, where we, where society has a better immune system against defectors, you know, whether it's through social punishment, actual, you know, uh, uh, uh restrictions or whatever. Uh, that's, that's definitely a good starting point. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say is, you know, like the reason why I'm like trying to raise awareness of this issue is because we need as many smart people to understand the, the nature of the problem that we're in, that we're in like basically an incentive design problem. And the more smart people, you know, put their minds to that as opposed to figuring out how to like extract, extract more dollars on the margin of whatever thing they're trading or, you know, then the the faster we will come to a better solution of this. So yeah, hope that kind of answers it. So maybe a question here to to just turn it around on itself is to ask how do we incentivize people to think about our incentive incentive design? Is there anything we could do here? Should we have prizes for coming up with the best incentive designs? Yes, that's a good idea. Um, hadn't considered that. Yeah, like the the annual win win prize. Who came up with the best cool new positive sum competition? You know that that aligns the incentives of of the individual with the whole. 
that's actually a really cool idea because I don't think we have, you know, we've got like analogous ones, like, oh, you know, the no, no, listen, the Nobel Prize, right? That is awarding someone who has expanded the, the frontier of human knowledge, which is definitely a win-winny action. That's an example of like incentive, like you're providing some form of competition. You know, people are competing for a Nobel Prize to an extent, but it's with the thoroughly positive externalities. But we haven't got one that's explicitly saying this, you know, that is explicitly about like systems design, and incentive design uh, on really hard coordination problems. Like whoever ends up fixing coordination problems for good deserves the prize of all prizes. That is, that is the ultimate universal prize, uh, at least from my perspective. So yeah, that, that would be one way. Do you actually think there is such a solution? Do you think coordination problems are solvable in a fully general sense? Or is it something that will always be with us just because there are limited resources in the universe, almost no matter how wealthy we become? Definitely, Moloch thrives on scarcity. You take away scarcity, it's going to be really hard for it to get its teeth into anything. Um, so all the while we have some degree of scarcity of something that people want, then there will probably see coordination problems arise and we'll see race to the bottoms arise. So my logical brain says, no, we can't. But my intuition says that actually we can. Uh, I think women would be like, oh, we can absolutely solve this. So I'm, I'm going to throw that out there too. What's an area of research that you would be most excited about in, in terms of incentive design? So we, we've mentioned social media, we've mentioned science, we've mentioned nuclear weapons. What's something that's that's extraordinarily important and you would you would like people to research from the incentive design perspective? Well, the one that's most on my mind right now is the AI arms race. Because, you know, we're, we're really watching that play out right before our eyes right now, um, where certain labs are being more mollicky than others. You know, they're all in a, in, in a competition for, you know, funds, for market share, for talent. You know, they all want to have the best researchers and developers. And so they're all in this, again, and they're all playing the game of like, they're all facing the, 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 you know, the moral dilemma of like, oh, I probably, sh this model isn't quite ready to release. I probably shouldn't release it to the general public yet. But if we don't, then those guys are going to do theirs first and so on. So it's another classic example of this. And I personally think that it's something, you know, we need to turn down the competition dial on the, you know, I, I would love for us to develop superintelligence, you know, and, and I think AI could be one of the best things that we ever invent. It might even help us solve coordination problems. But at the same time, right now, Moloch is getting into the development of it. And that is a really big problem, arguably the biggest problem that we're facing. And we've got a lot of big ones. Uh, so if people can put their minds to that, you know, how do we improve true coordination between the different competitors, essentially, trying to race to build AI? How do we develop better norms to incentivize these, these labs and companies for, you know, for, to, to not defect, to, to actually, you know, make, make, make it so that alignment is, is more closer to, you know, to progress, uh, or at least, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it, that, that is definitely the, the most pressing manifestation of Moloch in our, in our world right now. And I think the more people who can put their minds to it, the better our chances are of solving, if not just mitigating it.
how much uh, is humanity leaving on the table in terms of uh, gains we could have if we could avoid all of these monarchy type situations? Um, how much better could the world be if we could uh, coordinate in a in a in a more healthy way? A lot. <laughs> I can't quantify <laughs> that, <laughs> but the you know the the answer will be in like multiples, presumably, of world GDP. You know, just because there's just so many. It's costing, it's just making so many inefficiencies. And again, just like we're getting to the stage now where we are literally able to alter the climate of the planet that produced us and we need. Uh, We've built weapons that are so powerful that they could literally destroy everybody on earth. There's, there's, There's so much, it's essentially like value. You know, it's like negative value that we're producing that we could get rid of and like add into our future light cone that could lead into potentially millennia of human flourishing or whatever our descendants are, whether they're digital or, or, or natural. It, it just seems like an absolute tragedy that we are not putting all of our minds to figuring out how to solve, you know, how, how to gain control of our evolutionary path. Because right now we are not in control of our own evolution, of, of our own destiny. In, you know, individually, we might be able to control our little lives to an extent, but um, as a collective, we're not doing a particularly good job of that. But I think we can if if we just put our minds to it. What do you mean by the by us not controlling our evolution as a species? Well, it just seems like we we're just sort of following along with whatever incentives that have been dangled before us. You know, we're we're still operating on the same wetware that we had 150,000 years ago more or less. And while our brains are incredible, clearly they, the landscape in which we are, they are operating is so fundamentally different to what it was back then. We're just like clearly a little bit out of our depth. You know, even, even the most ardent accelerationists, I think, are, like, are aware that there are some things that like, could be dangerous, you know, and are like, whoa, okay. If, 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 you know, if we don't make a conscious effort to like build the morality, you know, but, but figure out what like values and principles we want to go into our technology and instead do it the other way around and let technology, just build the technology first and then see what arises from it. Then we're not in control of our own destiny. You know, like te- technology is driving us, the, the wheels are dri- driving us. Um, and to some extent, therefore, Moloch is driving us. We need to sort of reverse that stack. We, you know, like a, a good friend of mine described, you know, Moloch is like, if you let technology drive social structures, which then drive memes, that's where you get Moloch because technology is not values neutral. It can absolutely affect what what philosophies and principles we have if if we don't consciously guide it. And win-win is the other way around. Come up with your values, come up with your memes, let them give rise to human social structures that are like honoring those things. And from there, build the technologies that you need to better, like, you know, make your lives better. Um, So we just need a little bit more conscious intention behind the technologies that we build. We don't just, you know, do it because we think it's going to be most profitable or get us the most fame. What do you What do you say to the people who are who are not interested in it, in 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 trying to slow down and trying to to think about how we want to steer uh, technology? What do you think of the people who are who are simply in, uh, interested in accelerating technology as much as possible? How do they fit into to this whole um, social uh, structure and incentive structure? The, the 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 divergence between what it seems like you know the views are between for example ai alignment and 
the uh, AI accelerationist. I don't think the divergent is much as much as either side think. The vast majority of AI alignment people I know would like to see AGI exist. They would like technology to exist and for it to be as democratized as possible. You know, like I couldn't think of, I think it'd be horrifying to have some like centralized world cabal controlling it. Like that's a surefire way towards tyranny. Like that, that needs to be avoided. But at the same time, unfettered, like screw the externalities, just build whatever comes, you know, blah, 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 full steam ahead without any like real attempts to align it with keeping a biosphere alive is also devastating. So we need some third option. So that third option will come from the synthesis of these two groups. Like, I think if they hive mind together, there will be the, the third option where it's, you know, we get these amazing technologies that we deserve to have and we should have, and that they are not control, you know, vulnerable to authoritarianism and tyranny. What I personally love about like the, the accelerationist crew is like they have like they have so much optimism about the future. And I think that is sorely needed. It's really, really cool that, you know, the, the weak, you know, the weakness in their argument is that it seems to it seems to be based more on vibes sometimes as opposed to like actual solid understanding of how the alignment problems work. But that's that's you know that's fine. Everyone has a gap in knowledge, and everything is learnable. And again, like that optimism is incredibly important to drive the alignment people to keep working on on the thing. And I think there's so much like low hanging fruit for, between like knowledge sharing and information sharing between the two groups. They might appear at odds, but in reality, they're not. And I think if actually that's also part of the problem of like they communicate mostly through the internet, and internet is inherently like information lossy and and dehumanizing if they could actually just get in a room together and like talk they realize they actually have very similar goals or at least like you know they're not perfectly aligned but they're much closer aligned than it may appear through twitter so you would encourage them to cooperate and perhaps they could get to a, a win-win situation exactly yes <laughs> great that's a that's a great way to end it live thanks for coming on the podcast thank you